Want to turn your organization's data into a strategic asset? Pragmatic Institute offers training to data and business teams with a practical hands-on approach. Discover how Pragmatic can help you build a culture of data-driven decision-making at pragmaticinstitute.com data. Welcome to Data Chats, a podcast by Pragmatic Institute and the Data Incubator, where we tackle data topics and trends with experts, industry leaders, instructors, and alumni. I'm your host, Chris Richardson, and today I'm sitting down with Miriam Quick, a journalist, author, and musician who explores novel and diverse ways of communicating data. She co-creates artworks that represent data through sound, images, and sculpture, that have been exhibited at museums and galleries internationally. Miriam, thank you so much for joining me today. It's my pleasure. I look forward to talking about some of your work and what you've been doing and some of the ideas behind that. But maybe you can give our audience a brief kind of summary of your background and what brought you to where you are today. Sure. So I describe myself as a data journalist in that I do data-driven stories. I write stories for clients, including the BBC. I do a lot of research that goes towards making charts and visual stories particularly. But I also do stuff that I would say is much broader than data journalism in a traditional sense. So I work with an organization called Data for Change to help train up civil society organizations based across the world in data skills so that they can use their data to inform their advocacy work and do advocacy more effectively. And as you just mentioned, I also co-create artworks for museums and galleries. So I've worked uh, on pieces for the Wellcome Collection, the National Maritime Museum, South Bank Centre in London. And these are often visual artworks and they're often in collaboration with my regular collaborator, Stephanie Posarek, who is an artist and an information designer. But I also do a lot of data sonification and I create musical tracks based off data. So I'm the co-host with Duncan Gera for this podcast called Loud Numbers. And we've also recently launched as a data sonification studio, so creating sonifications commercially for clients. And I'm also an author. So I've written a book with Stephanie Posovec called I'm a Book, I'm a Portal to the Universe. And it's actually an all-ages book. It's for both children and adults. And it was published by Penguin in 2020. And in it, we really try to think of a new way of coming up with a data-driven book. So it's not a traditional book of infographics. It's actually a completely new approach to kind of using data to govern the whole structure of a book. And maybe I can talk about that in a little while. But I guess the thread that runs kind of through all of my work is that I'm always trying to find ways to use data that, that are creative and also constructive to communicate ideas that will hopefully kind of inspire people to look at the world in a different way. Because I mean, I, I personally really love finding out about the world through data and I kind of want to inspire other people to do the same thing. Yeah. And I definitely get that impression from looking at your work that it can, you know, inspire people to see things in new ways. And I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that aspect of creativity, because I think especially, you know, people who aren't involved in data may see it as a boring square, you know, just the way I think of most math in some ways, <laughs> right? And yet you're doing some, some really interesting, creative and, and fun things. So how do you think of those two things? Is it just a, simply a misunderstanding from people outside of data? Or, you know, have you seen that kind of boring data and maybe you're fighting against it? How do you square creativity and data? 
Well, I definitely don't think of data as boring. You're right. I think a lot of it comes from the formats in which we typically consume data. You know, you might think of a spreadsheet and how it's laid out with a load of numbers in black and white. And, you know, to many people, not to me because I love spreadsheets, but to many people that that might come across as dry. I think it also has to do with with the way that maths is taught in school, you know, you're taught that either you're kind of for maths or against maths, almost like it's this kind of Marmite subject. And I think that can be really corrosive, you know, particularly mm. for women who might be put off by the stereotype of the maths nerd being male. And, and I really try to try and move beyond those sorts of stereotypes and show to people that data is not dry. And I think that What's really helped with this over the past 10 years or so is the way that we now consume, because there's so much data out there, perhaps we're starting to supersede this idea that data is dry. We're, we're typically consuming it through visualizations. I mean, there's so much data you can't really consume in the form of spreadsheets. And visualizations are helping to break that down, the idea that data is dry, I think. And increasingly, you know, these visualizations are extremely beautifully designed, involving a lot of creative thinking and Increasingly multi-sensory as well. You know, mm -hmm. I do a lot of work with sonification, as I mentioned, and thinking of ways in which we can expand this idea that data is something that just sits on the spreadsheet and, and doesn't move there. So, you know, I've, I'm really interested in experimenting with unusual formats that we can put data in. So I've turned data from everything from, you know, traditional charts and graphics to 12-inch records and, and music tracks. One of my projects was with a designer called Valentina de Filippo, and we actually turned musical data on David Bowie's song, Space Oddity, into a series of records. So obviously you've got the, the record as a kind of circular format. We made it so that we had this whole series of records that were literally like acrylic discs and the data was engraved into the surface, but not in a traditional way, like not, not using grooves, but instead using visualizations. And in each one, you read it the same way. You start at 12 o'clock at the top of the record. And one complete rotation of the record, if you like, is, is the whole duration of the song. And we took lots and lots of different aspects of the song. You know, we took aspects of like the harmonies, the chords that it goes through. We took the the story, you know, it starts with uh, Major Tom being on Earth and then goes, he's fired into space and he communicates with ground control. I don't know if you know the song. And at mm -hmm. the end, he kind of drifts off into space. So we represented that. We represented the notes in the bass line, the rhythm in the bass line. And I used a program called Sonic Visualizer to actually kind of tap out the rhythm of the baseline on an audio file and then extract that data as a text file and then simply visualize that. So yeah, really interested in kind of stretching what you can do with data and coming up with ideas of representing it that people haven't thought of before. Yeah. I wonder how you got started in that direction. Like, Were there early cases that you started to experiment with before I can't imagine that you'd started with something like that record that you're describing, right? So can you take us through how somebody might go from learning the basics to doing what it is that you're doing? What are some of those steps along the way? Well, I think I have followed quite an unusual trajectory. So I actually came to working with data from doing a PhD in music, specifically musicology. So that's kind of why I'm so interested in sound and sonification and music. Mm -hmm. And I was always interested in communication and writing. So I did a lot of student journalism at university. But then I did PhD in music and I got very interested in data through that. I was actually doing studying recordings and how performance style changes through recordings. And as part of that, I was making a lot of charts and graphics. And I was working with data from recordings think on things like timing and intonation and how performers play and how you can encapsulate that using numbers. So I came to visualization from that. And then after I'd finished my music PhD, I kind of decided I didn't want to be an academic. And I started working as a researcher for David McCandless, who you might know did the book Information is Beautiful, which was mm. a really kind of influential book in the field about 10 years ago. 
And from that, I started working with information design studios as a researcher initially, and then as a copywriter, I started working with the BBC. And then I started really branching out into art projects, which is, I guess, what I'm most passionate about. And then writing books, including the book with Stephanie, and more recently, Sonification. So I guess I've always had this sort of dual focus of like arts on the one hand and then and then data on the other. And, you know, when I first started, my data skills were really not very good. They've, they've had to improve on the job and I've learned kind of by doing, which has actually mm-hmm. been a really great way to learn. And as the field has changed around me as well. And I think, I don't know how replicable my process is. I think it was probably kind of a product of my unique background that I was able to carve out this really strange niche within the broader field of data visualization and information design. Um, I do know other people who do research for graphics, but I think we've all kind of got our own little specialisms and little niches within that. Yeah, I wonder if there's anything that you've learned with that unique background that you might be able to share for people who obviously don't have that same kind of trajectory. Like if there are people listening to this who, I don't know, maybe they've come from a more traditional computer science or, or data engineering or whatever that may be, but they want to improve their data viz skills and experiment a little bit. What are some of the things that you've learned along the way that you might be able to share with others? I think the main thing to learn is probably to play to your strengths. So if you come from a computer science background and that's what you're into and that's what you know about, then that there will be something within that that makes you unique. And it might be an interest that you have that you can combine with computer science to create something really, really new. It might be a really strange, weird interest. Like I know somebody who is a really great developer and he's also a climber. And I know he's created some really interesting kind of hybrid visualizations of like rock faces and kind of 3D mapping the rock faces. Oh, that's obviously quite a weird niche, but there will be something for everybody where they have that passion and that interest that they can combine with their, with their knowledge to create something really unique. And I think, I guess my advice would be to find that and just roll with it. When you're doing that, when you're experimenting, how do you know, especially if you're doing something more like, say, for the BBC or something where it's going to be a broad audience and you want to get information across clearly as, as any sort of journalist would, where do you or how do you think about that creative experimentation aspect, but also making something as clear as you can or depending on the project, of course, but for a broader audience, how do you, how do you what questions are you asking and what kinds of decisions are you making? Especially, I can imagine that you would play with a lot of things, but you'd also have to choose a few very specific things once you've had that experimentation. So I wonder if you could say a little bit about that. Yeah, I think the approach can be somewhat different depending on who the client is for. So you mentioned the BBC. Uh, Often with the BBC, I will have a brief that I will work to. And of course, Everybody who's working on these pieces is very clear about who, who the audience is. I do a lot of work for BBC.com. That's BBC Culture, BBC Future and BBC Work Life. I think with creative projects, it's somewhat different than that you don't have the brief as such in advance. You're more writing your own brief. You're finding out what's interesting. But I guess the way in which they're common is maybe just thinking about the structure of things and how you're going to tell the story and also thinking about what is most interesting about the topic. So for me, because I do research in an awful lot of different areas, I'm often approaching them as a newbie. Like I'm not an expert, like no one is an expert in in lots of different areas. And I might have a kind of working knowledge of them, but I'm often approaching them with, you might call it a beginner's mind. So it's actually quite a helpful position to be in if you're writing or making something Mm -hmm. for a broad audience, because you're sitting in the same shoes as, as your audience and you probably have some of the same knowledge and blind spots that they do. So you can approach it, well, in a way that says, how does this make sense to me? How do I 
understand this topic, what leaps out at me as most interesting? Where are the kind of tension points? Um, where are the things that seem surprising? Like really home in on them and use them to kind of draw people in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe if you could say a little bit more about those things that are surprising or interesting. What are some examples of things that you've seen? So first of all, are you looking at a spreadsheet first? Or are you playing with different visualizations? And then what are you looking for? Because I like that idea of, you know, a beginner's mind where you're looking, you're finding things that stand out and that seem unique or interesting. And that's probably what you'll focus on. But how do you know those things? Like, where do you discover that? And how do you make those decisions? Yeah. So I'm normally starting, it might be different for different projects, but let's say I'm starting with a data set that somebody has given me. First, I'll have to spend an awful lot of time cleaning it, as I'm sure everybody yeah. does with data. and That takes up ages. And then I will do a lot of background, basically internet research to try and understand what this topic field is about. Where are the, the interesting questions to be asked? Where is current research? You know, I do a lot of work that's kind of broadly scientific, particularly in kind of health and environment fields. So I'll read news stories. I will read papers on that. I will familiarize myself with the key terminology and make an awful lot of notes on that. And in terms of the data, you know, it'll be lots of exploratory plots and visualizations initially to kind of see what the main trends are. I just would use Google Sheets or Excel for this mostly. If it's a bigger data set, I would use ggplot in R. And then I guess you're, you're looking for things that are either, you know, headlines that you can use to approach a story. Like, I don't know, I'm making this up, but, you know, only 13% of people are happy with their childcare or something like that. You know, that's a kind of an entry point into a topic. Or maybe it'll be a surprise, you know, 95% of British people are happy with their childcare. I mean, that's probably made up, but, you know, mm -hmm. that's something that would surprise you because it's not what you think it's going to be. Outliers, you know, yeah, things that jump out of the, of the visualizations, things that jump out of the data. And then just question them. So, you know, why is this happening? Ask myself questions. I sometimes literally write out questions and answers. What is happening here? Why is this the case? And then you're thinking, you're beginning to think in terms of an ordering. So, you know, how the story might flow, how you might introduce this as a narrative, what information you're going to include or exclude. And you're really thinking about the constraints of the form. Like, am I making an infographic? Is it static? Am I making a dashboard? Am I making an animation? And then, you know, what will the script be? What will the tone of the script be? Obviously, which audience it's for is really important. And you're kind of almost developing a kind of rhythm to the story at this point, you know, thinking about the tone of voice, thinking about how to tell it. And then I would start like structuring the information. And often this is in a spreadsheet. I said, I love spreadsheets, but I do also use them for writing because they, they're really good for visual formats. You know, you can put the text in a cell. It stays quite tight and quite modular. So you're not kind of writing reams and reams of text. And of course, you can then copy paste the cells around in a kind of 2D space. So they're easy to move around in the narrative. And then I might actually end up with a, almost like a narrative by itself in a spreadsheet with little tables in there of, you know, key data, key statistics, headlines, subheads, and then label text. You know, this will be a label. And then you might have a load of accompanying data sheets as well and sometimes little test charts. And the, I guess you're always whittling it down, trying to make it as approachable and as easy to understand as possible. I mean, I'm actually not a graphic designer myself. I make test charts, exploratory plots, but I'm not doing the final graphic design. So if it's a visual piece, as it often is, I'm always handing the data over to someone else to interpret. So what I give them has got to be as easy to understand as possible and ideally should encapsulate you know, the point of this story really quickly and neatly. Yeah. And when you're thinking about stories, and especially if you don't have a very tight constraint, like, you, you know, you, somebody said, we want one image or we want a video. So if you have the options to play with that, 
do you prefer, or at, I guess I should say, at what kind of situation would you say, I want to make multiple visualizations, or I want to make something that will morph or animate versus this is something where one image would be perfect, or I don't know, maybe you think in a different way, but I'm curious if you have a bunch of options available to you, like a bunch of visuals you could do sequentially or what have you, how do you make those decisions? And what, what have you seen that typically works best for, say, one visualization or an animation or something interactive? Are there, are there things that make those better for storytelling? Yeah, so I think it, you know, it comes down to the richness of the data that you have and the complexity of the data that you have. And I think that certainly when you're thinking about whether to make something interactive, the question is, can a person fully understand this data in a static format or is it beneficial for them to be able to explore it? And, I, you know, I really like interactive. So they're slightly, maybe not as popular as they used to be, maybe five five to eight years ago. But I really think that exploring data interactively is a great way to feel like you've got a stake in it and mm. to be able to test things, to be able to tweak things. And it gives you a kind of almost like skin in the game. And that is a much better way to get a story. No, it's, it's a very good way to get a story across. There is also a role for these narrative explanatory infographics or explanatory stories as well. Um, and I think, you know, on the subject of testing things, I don't know if you remember a few years ago, the, the New York Times the Upshot did a series of little charts that were called You Draw It, where you had like a trend and it might be, I don't know, drug overdose deaths and then they would they would have half the trend as a line chart and then the rest of it you had to like physically draw on the screen whether you thought the line was going to continue to go down or whether it was going to go up or whether it was going to stay flat i thought this was fantastic because it was it's such an interactive way it actually makes you think more deeply about what you know already versus what you don't know and often you know i would do these things and think oh yes i know about this topic and then i would get it completely wrong and it's like having your knowledge confirmed or disconfirmed i think it's a really great way to tell a story and it's a really great way to learn as well yeah i have to look for that i don't usually i'm on top of those things but i don't i don't think i've seen that but yeah testing and failing is you know like seeing if you're you're right or wrong is one of those great ways to learn so yeah definitely are there other things that you've seen that can be especially helpful for teaching or for, for getting points across in a deeper way? Oh, I really love games. And it's that interactivity again, isn't it? Mm. And I really like the work of Nikki Case. I don't know if you're familiar with sure. them. They do these fantastic, I think they're called explorable explanations, where oh. it, there might be an introduction to a concept in game theory. And you will learn it by playing a game where you have to like move stick figures around a screen or yeah, I totally recommend checking out their work in the key case. I also think, yeah, simulations as well. I mean, we saw in COVID, like there's so many roles for simulations in explaining complex phenomena, like viral spread to the, to the public. I mean, there was that wonderful one with the, with the Washington Post. Was it Harry Stevens who did it, where there were lots of balls bouncing around inside a room and then gradually the partition is removed mm. between two parts of the of the room and you see the balls bouncing into the next space and it mimics how viruses spread through the air and how quickly they can actually colonize a new space. So I thought that was a really great kind of visual explainer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do remember that one. And I wonder, not to pick on those because, yeah, those are all great examples. Have you seen examples that maybe go too far or that have you seen yourself, I guess, playing with ideas and, and realizing for some reason this is too abstract or it's too much for somebody to to get the meaning I want? I wonder if there are 
kind of markers or things that you look for when you're making a decision that maybe you have to cut back a little bit on maybe the creativity or just the the complexity of something? What are some of those questions you're asking yourself along the way? And how do you know if maybe something has gotten too complex or too different from expectations of readers or viewers? I think that's a really great question. A lot of it will depend on you know, who the project is for. And you obviously have a lot more freedom with an art project to just go off and do whatever it is you feel is is important. I think maybe when you're doing commercial work, there is always that sense of like, you intuitively know when you've gone a bit too far. And you know you've gone too far if your spreadsheet is ballooning and your text is ballooning and your script is 10 minutes too long. But yeah, I, I definitely think that the impulse to throw too much information in that is was definitely present for Duncan and I when we first started working on our sonifications. When we first started working on the Loud Numbers podcast, which was about 2020, so it was kind of a lockdown project initially, we got really, really excited about sonification because we were pretty much learning it as we were creating the podcast. And we were like, right, okay, we're going to throw as many different mappings into this sonification as we can. So just so you're familiar, mappings are like with a visualization, you might map data to a color or position or shape or size of something, a bar or a line or whatever. You do exactly the same in sonification, but you're mapping quantities to the loudness of a sound, or the volume or the pitch of a sound. So maybe as the numbers get higher, the, the pitch gets higher, or you might use the duration of a sound. So like the higher the number, the longer the note or the pan. So the more there is, the more it now moves to the right of the stereo field or, or something like that. And there's many, many different things you, you can map it to. But when we started, we were like, okay, we can do this. We can map stuff. So we're going to map as much as we possibly can. And I think our first experiment came up with something like 10 different mappings. It was on climate change. And we were like, we we're going to map the temperature that we were using as the main data set. And we we're going to map the number of sunspots, which obviously is unrelated to temperature, but we thought it was cool. We're going to map the, the amount of CO2 in the air, and then there was all sorts of other stuff we like, just decided to throw in there just because we could. And then we ended up with something that was completely impossible to understand. And even we didn't get it. We were like, we need to pair this back a bit. So one thing we've learned since then is really just to keep it simple, especially with sonification, which is a fairly new form. People aren't so used to understanding or parsing sonifications. And you really do have to keep it simple to try and get the point across. Explore Pragmatic Institute's training to help your organization become data-driven. Our courses provide teams with the hands-on practice and skills they need to leverage data for business success. Visit pragmaticinstitute.com slash data today. Do you, you don't happen to have one on your computer right now that you might be able to do as an example of sonification? Of sonification? I can certainly send you one afterwards. Yeah, if that we can like. maybe put it on because obviously sure. we can point people to the podcast, but I'm just thinking if, if people haven't heard that, it's interesting to hear some of those examples. So maybe we'll be able to put a few of those on. That'd sure. I'll send some over. But yeah, so are there other ways of thinking about representation that you've you know opened up to in terms of how you communicate? Because I think obviously most people, if they're learning data visualization and techniques like that, are not thinking about sound, but now I bet you they are after listening to you if they haven't thought about it before. Are there other things that you're interested in or have experimented in that you think, I don't know, maybe coming in the future or maybe more common in the future, but aren't very much right now? I think one thing that's really at an experimental stage right now 
is using data to create physical objects. So you might call it data physicalization, but I think that's a kind of ugly word. But yeah, using data-driven objects, so or you might call it data sculpture. That's probably a nicer word. So Stephanie and I have, have experimented with this, uh, Stephanie Posovac. We've turned air quality data from Sheffield into sets of physical objects. We have a set of three pairs of glasses and each glass, a pair of glasses has three lenses and the etchings on the lenses get larger or smaller depending on how much air pollution was in the air that day. And we've got three lenses because there's three different pollutants that we looked at. And then each pair of glasses corresponds to a day of data, like the average readings over a day of data. So this is all very precisely plotted. But what you get when you actually put the glasses on is a very impressionistic idea of how uh, clean or dirty the air was that day. So because the lenses kind of layer, they sort of build up. And then when you put them on, the ones with the larger patterns look a lot blurrier. And the ones with the smaller patterns look kind of clearer, like you can actually see through them more. So yeah, it's a really nice way of making data tangible and turning it into a, into a physical experience. And then the other set of three objects that we had there was turning the same data into necklaces, which you can literally wear. They're made of perspex beads and there's 28 beads on each necklace and each one corresponds to six hours of data. So the beads are kind of color coded, but they're also color coded by shape. So they get kind of smaller or larger and they also get smoother and spikier. So you've got a sort of tactile feedback to them. So that when you've got six hour periods that were very, where the air was pretty clean, you get these like small green smooth beads. They're quite nice to touch. And then when the air was really dirty, you get these really spiky beads. And there's one of our necklaces that's got a super spiky bright orange bead. And that corresponds to bonfire night, which in the UK is where you, you light fires, you let off fireworks to commemorate Guy Fawkes doing mm. something in 1605. And the air, the air quality is pretty bad that night. So you get, yeah, you can really feel the changes as they occur. And w when you're coming up with stuff like that, are you thinking specifically about potential biases or ways of showing things that like, are you, are you thinking you want to tell a certain story and therefore you want people to feel a certain way? Or are you thinking maybe, in, and maybe it varies, but you want to be as objective as possible? How do you think about data bias when you're working on projects like this? That really very much depends on the project. I think that with all the projects that I work on, there is, I strive for accuracy, whether that's an art project or a chart, but the goals are very different. I think with a chart, you're really looking to represent the data as accurately and faithfully as possible in order to give people an accurate and non-misleading idea about what is going on in the world, what that topic means. When you're working on an art project, the goal is slightly different. I think it's to introduce people to a world of ideas, to a, a kind of an emotional field, if you like. Mm -hmm. And I think it is important that the data is accurate because, you know, what's the point of having a story that's fictional in this field? For me, that's not, that's not interesting. But you might play up certain aspects of it. And I think, you know, for example, with sonification, you're using sound in a very emotional way. You're playing directly into the, the emotional aspects of sound and tapping into those associations to try and get a point across. You know, we in our podcast, we did an episode about insect decline, which is obviously a huge environmental problem. Mm -hmm. And we took data from a scientific paper that was kind of based on this quite unique experiment where this, this dude basically drove a hire car along a stretch of road in Denmark for like 20 years, every summer, every day, every summer for 20 years, and then measured the number of insects that got splattered onto his windscreen. 
and he like he counted them and he categorized them into small insects and large insects and then he totted up the numbers and he found that there was this really quite shocking decline i think it was like 90% or something and that tallies with other studies that have looked at similar things across europe so it's it's really really shocking and so for the sonification we thought well we're not going to shy away from the nature of this this tragedy and we do think it's a tragedy so the track it t- itself is quite funereal there's a bell that tolls and it tolls every year in, in the data set. So you've got this kind of funeral quality to it. The baseline, which is actually not based on the data, it's just there to kind of make the track sound good, is based on the DS Irae sequence, which is, I think, a funeral sequence that's used in Mozart's Requiem. And it's a particular se- sequence that notes that goes, da, 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 da. We use that very, very self-consciously. You've got almost like crows cawing in the background. Going, ah, ah, ah. So you, it's almost like evoking this sort of desolate, a windswept landscape with no insects in it. And the insect sounds themselves are, are set to this kind of fluttering synth sound. And the more sounds there are, the more insects. So the fewer the sounds, the fewer the insects. And you can hear the track literally sort of empty out by the end. Hmm. So we're really trying to play up the kind of the emotional aspects of it. Yeah. I mean, and that makes perfect sense how you're describing it. I wonder if you have a more general take on how to make those kinds of decisions about maybe the emotional impact or the thing that you want to draw people's attention to. Because even what you were saying earlier about what's most interesting about this data, that might be a headline, for example. I mean, I I think there's different schools of thought for people working in this space. Some who don't want to make any value judgment on their own. You know, they want the data to be as, as quote unquote objective as possible. Others that say that's kind of useless. If you're going to present something, you want to have an opinion so that you know, or you guide people on where to look and potentially how to feel about certain data. I wonder if you have an approach in general, or does it change depending on certain cues? And how do you, how do you think about making those decisions about how much you want to sort of put your voice or your perspective in to guide people versus letting them, I guess, you know, see a, a almost a blank slate in terms of emotion or impact and let them figure it out? I, th- I think I tend to swing towards the second group of people you mentioned who, to, who think that making these types of decisions is unavoidable hmm. and that you should grapple with them. I mean, even making a decision to make no decisions, well, it's impossible. And even presenting something in a quote-unquote neutral way is is an aesthetic decision. You can't step back from that. And even with visualization, you know, your color choice, your choice of chart device, the font that you use for your labeling, all of it will have an impression. And I think engaging with this involves recognizing that you have a responsibility to curate that impression in a way that communicates the topic however you want it to be communicated that might be that you you want people to be analytical you want people to step back from the topic you want them to appraise it as a whole to be able to weigh things up in a positive negative way maybe you've got a piece that is very much trying to do that and that's absolutely fine and that will lead to a certain suite of aesthetic decisions or maybe you're communicating data for advocacy you know this is for a charity or an ngo you want people to come to a certain conclusion mm-hmm. or maybe you're writing a story where the conclusion is so inavoidable, like, you know, we might be writing about insect decline where the, the data is just so unequivocal that it's not really something that you can come to an opposing position about in, in a reasonable way. It depends on the audience, depends on the goal. It's really, I think there's a whole spectrum of possibility here, but I do tend to 
want to think that that this is a decision you have to make and it isn't one that you can really realistically shy away from. Like the idea that there is something out there called the data itself and that you can be objective about it. Well, I don't think that's I don't think that's true. Data is always gathered by someone mm-hmm. with a particular for a particular reason. They have to make a decision about what to include, what to leave out. They have to make a decision about how to structure that data set, how to label it, you know, even the terminology used, everything carries mm-hmm. a value judgment. And then of course you as the person making a decision about whether to write a story on how to write the story or how to visualize it, you've got to keep making decision after decision. All of those things carry value judgments within them. So I think it's a question of doing it responsibly and trying to be as accurate and faithful to the topic that you can be. And of course, citing everything properly, referencing all the latest research, all these basic things. Yeah. Are there flaws that you've seen in others' works or other examples where decisions were made and guide, like they're guiding people towards something, but it wasn't done in the way that you would like to see it or, you know, it's done in a problematic way? Because I totally get what you're saying about basically everything is going to have some kind of value. So you, it's unavoidable. But we've also seen, especially I think in political contexts, some really problematic representations of data. So how do you know or what might you look for to see if you're simply guiding people on how to read this data versus you know, doing something more akin to propaganda? How do, you, how do you start to look for those differences? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I think there's several hallmarks of when somebody's trying to mislead you. Um, they probably won't reference a source for a start. They probably won't have any kind of nuance in the way that they've described the data or introduced it. There are numerous, very egregious data viz sins that, you know, everybody knows about, like not having y-axes that start at mm-hmm. zero or uh, using 3D pie charts or 3D bar charts or having bars that aren't the same width all the way from the top to the bottom. These types of things that are, that are very basic. And often I think the types of graphics that you're talking about will do some things like that. I think that's probably an interesting example. You know, a few years ago, I think there was this chloropleth map of vote share and I believe it was the 2017 election in the US where Mm -hmm. you see the red counties and then you see the blue counties and of course if you look by area then it's not that that visualization device is is wrong it's just that because Republican counties the population is so much more spread out over a wide geographical area then that is actually misleading it makes the country look much more red than it really is so I mean that would be a, a good example of a chart type that's actually there's nothing wrong with the chart type it's just that the data doesn't suit it and if you use a different chart device like a hex bin map or something that's scaled where you've got dots scaled to population rather than to the area that would be a much more accurate way of representing it yeah i've had a good conversation with alberto cairo about that and exactly that issue because that's something we see in the u.s all the time and probably in a lot of electoral maps is you know sparse areas with virtually no people, but they, if you didn't know to look for it, you you could easily be confused if you were if you didn't know the population sizes. That said, maybe sort of a flip question is: Do you look for where do you look for ideas and like ideal uses of certain data visualizations? Are there sources that you continually get inspiration from? Where do you? I'm curious where you look and where you might recommend others look if they're if they're looking for sources of inspiration of data viz in whatever in whatever way at its at its best yeah well one of the places that i've looked consistently is actually the information is beautiful awards showcase mm-hmm. which runs back to 2012 now so it's been running every year since 2012 and you know the winning examples of visualizations and all the different categories that they have are just a really fantastic treasure trove for people if you're looking for inspiration. So I use that quite a lot. Are there regular places that you get ideas from? Like, do you, 
Do you look at eclectic places? Because your work itself is so eclectic, but I wonder if you have different sources for different kinds of things or or what? what give me give me a sense of what you look at, you know, beyond the, the awards, as you mentioned. I look at, well, I mean, I look at Instagram. I look at Twitter. I look at Behance. I look at the people I follow on there. I have, you know, certain people whose work I will always look at when a new project comes out, like Moritz Stefana, whose work is just incredible. In terms of... Yeah, sonification. There's a really great archive at sonification.design that I use to see what other people are doing. That gets updated pretty frequently. There's the same one for data physicalization or sculpture or whatever you want to call it at dataphys.org. That's got it's a similar repository of, of work that people are creating that kind of maps data to something tactile. Yeah, I think that's pretty much it. I don't know. I, I absorb things off the internet. What can I say? <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's the place to go, I guess. But I think what happens is that it can be sort of overwhelming to see all these different sources and especially people who don't necessarily know where to look. I think it's, yeah, there's just like a plethora of information coming at you. Are there things that stand out if you're literally like looking at, I don't know, thousands of sources on the internet over a year, where or how do you know that you're looking at a data viz that's going to stand out that's going to have an impression on you that maybe you're going to take and borrow some of these ideas are there elements that you often find yourself saying like oh this this makes something interesting to me versus all the other sort of noise i think it's about whether it makes me feel something or do i think about it afterwards you know do you get that kind of free song is it trying to do something new i, I would say that I, I don't feel as though like for example some of the artworks i do is that inspired by what's happening in conventional data visualization. I think that informs my kind of everyday work. Mm -hmm. But I think that artworks tend to be informed by artworks. And often it isn't a case of simply being inspired by one thing. It'll be almost like absorbing things by osmosis from lots of lots of different areas. But in terms of like the, you know, the everyday just chart making, I, I mean there's some practitioners who produce things consistently well, like the Financial Times, The Economist, yeah, the BBC a little uh, Scientific American, they're really great. So yeah, I will always look to them for kind of to understand a topic as much as anything else. Cool. Yeah, I wonder if you have any advice for people. I'm I'm especially interested. Or I'm I'm just picturing in my head some of the people listening are definitely going to be at you know major organizations, major enterprises. The idea of you know data sculpture sounds probably very cool to them, but they know they're not going to bring that to the CEO or at least no time soon. I wonder if there are ways, maybe there, there are two things that you could tell people to try in the next few days or something to just get a sense of what they're capable of. But people, were, they, were they're a little nervous maybe about working on a project that is too quote unquote artistic for their organization? What are some things that they might be able to try to go beyond the basics to maybe have that frisson as you talked about but also, you know, to to avoid going too far for their organization, whatever that means. What are some things that they could try? Well, I think one thing that I found really helpful is to actually work on paper rather than working in charting software. Mm -hmm. So, you know, charting software is absolutely great. But to really think about what your data is doing in a more abstract way that isn't tied to a particular chart type that you've used before, working on paper can be a really good place to start there. And there's obviously a lot of precedent for people sketching on, on paper, sketching as chart types on paper. Particularly recently, we've had to, you know, data sketches by Shirley Wu, Nadia Bremer. That's a really great book. Hmm. 
There's Dear Data by Stephanie Posovec, who's my friend and collaborator, and Georgia Lupi, where every week they sent a postcard to each other in which they drew some data that had happened to them this week. So it might be like every time they laughed or every time they felt grateful or every time they whinged. And then they'll come up with these incredibly original, non-standard chart types for doing that. So th- yeah, thinking, I guess, more abstractly and then trying to put that into pen and paper. So you've got a really low bar to actually doing that is, is a good way forward. And I guess related to that, I mean... I love chart type repositories. So, you know, there's a really good one that the Financial Times did. I think it's called the Visual Vocabulary. There's the Dataviz catalog, which mm-hmm. is also very useful. And there's one that I really like called Xenographics. It's Z-X-E-N-O dot graphics because it's got loads of really weird ones in there like Marimekko slope charts and rain cloud plots. And actually rain cloud plots look pretty useful, but there's some other ones in there that you'd probably never use, but they do get you thinking outside the box and get you thinking a little bit more differently about what can be done. And actually there's a huge range of possibilities out there. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that gives people a lot of places to look and think about, especially, I mean, if they don't see themselves as artists per se, it's still a way to, to push their own boundaries, which I really like. And as you said, uh, I think a lot of the places you mentioned, we're definitely going to put in the show notes so that people can kind of click through and get some of some of these impressions of what you're talking about. If people want to know more about your work and what you're doing, where do you suggest they follow or where should they look? So my website is miriamquick.com. I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn as well. I'm just at Miriam Quick. Uh, for Loud Numbers, which is our sonification studio, that's loudnumbers.net. Or the Loud Numbers podcast, you can obviously get on any sort of podcast provider that you use. And the book that Stephanie and I have worked on, which is called I Am A Book, I'm A Portal to the Universe. You can get that from pretty much all booksellers, I think. And if you're outside the US or the UK, then the book depository is a good place to get that because I think it ships internationally for free. Very cool. Yeah, I love that title too. Yeah, yeah, it's great. I guess I didn't really explain the concept behind the book, did I? Sure, yeah, let's hear that. I'm curious. Okay, let's finish on that. So the the idea of it being a portal is that instead of actually having data represented on the page as charts or graphics, the book itself is the visualization device, if you like. It embodies the data that we're talking about. So it's really a kind of a journey through lots and lots of different scientific facts. And then it may be that the weight of the book represents something, or it might be the area of the book. It might be the height of the letter. It might be the thickness of a page or the height or width of a page. So for example, one of the spreads, we, you hold the book up to the sky and at arm's length, there are 6,000 billion, billion stars behind the imprint of the two pages. So you're literally using the book as a kind of portal to the world around you. Yeah, I love that concept. And I think that that's, that, that kind of embodies exactly what I've gotten from you over this conversation is that, you know, people may feel a little stuck in what they're doing in terms of visualization, but seeing this kind of stuff is inspiring just to, you know, question how it is that we're representing data. Because even if you're not going to make something as creative as this kind of book that you're, that you've done, I think there's a lot of places where people can push themselves and hopefully they're seeing more and more of that or getting inspired more. And then we can get rid of some of these really horrible presentations that I think a lot of people are seeing in their, in their organizations. But yeah, Mira, I just want to thank you for coming on Data Chats and speaking with me today. I think, like I said, it's a lot of inspiring ideas and I hope people will go check out your work and get more inspired. Thanks, Dara. It's been a pleasure talking to you.